This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, September the 21st, 2023. There are some renovations going on above my head here in Studio 7, so you might also hear a hammer in this segment of the show. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Apple's latest software update has a lot more to offer than you might know about. Mark Aflalo will share some little-known facts about iOS 17. And a haunting in Venice debuted last weekend in theaters to some big old bucks. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will offer up his review, but the hour begins with the regional news updates. Starting in British Columbia, four firefighters in BC have died after their vehicle was involved in a head-on collision. John Kennedy has the story. B.C. Premier David Eby and Forests Minister Bruce Ralston say in a joint statement the firefighters died in a motor vehicle accident near Cache Creek in the B.C. interior. Eby and Ralston's statement say they stand with the B.C. Wildfire Service personnel as they mourn the death of colleagues and co-workers yet again. Police say the firefighters were traveling home in a Ford F-350 pickup truck that had failed to navigate a turn and slammed head-on into a semi going in the opposite direction. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press. And over to the prairies, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is set to release a report about whether the province should ditch the Canada Pension Plan. Smith, Finance Minister Nate Horner and Panel Chair Jim Dinning will release the report at a news conference in Calgary. The Premier and her predecessor Jason Kenney have both expressed support for the potential of a go-it-alone program. They point to Alberta's wealth and comparatively young population. And over to Ontario. Ontario is extending funding that helps rural and northern hospitals avoid temporary ER closures. Lisa Laporte takes a closer look. A memo from the Deputy Health Minister to affected hospitals says that the temporary locum program will now continue until March 31st. Many northern and rural hospitals rely on doctors from urban areas filling shifts on what is known as a locum basis. The program was created during the pandemic to pay those doctors a premium for that work. The ministry told hospitals in the spring that the program would be wound down after September 30th. There have been numerous temporary Temporary ER closures across Ontario this year due to staffing shortages, including a lack of nurses. Lisa Laporte, the Canadian Press, Toronto. And over to the Atlantic provinces, a new study by Oceans North has concluded that a switch from diesel to electric lobster boats is viable for over 2,000 boats in Nova Scotia. The report shows that Nova Scotia's lobster fishery is positioned to lead the way towards zero emission fishing. Its conclusion was partly based on the finding that 70% of the fleet fishes within 20 kilometers of their home port, meaning they're able to safely rely on electric power. The report says the Nova Scotia lobster fleet produces roughly 35,000 cars worth of emissions. 
makes you think that maybe strictly going electric might not be the answer there, but hybrid boats make some sense. You don't want to be in the middle of the ocean and have your battery die. But, you know, get a little hybrid there, keep a couple diesel uh, items in there in case of emergency. Bada bing, bada boom. Good ideas coming out there of Atlantic Canada. That's your look at the news. Here comes the sports chat with Brock Richardson. Brock, tis the season as the marathon that is Major League Baseball winds down and more and more teams are being mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, but it's not stopping them from playing spoiler. No, it's not. And it's it's a term that you hear regularly at this time of year. Such and such team is playing spoiler. And, and I have to say that those are the teams that are mathematically eliminated from any level of contentions that are really, really hard to play because those are the teams that come in and say, we got nothing to lose. We'll, we'll, we'll put a damper into X team and let them, you know, feel a little bit of our pain. No problem for me. I, in my career, I loved, uh, you know, playing spoiler when I was mathematically eliminated uh, in something because you could invariably see the person, you know, a little tighter, a little, a little bit more intense because they have to win this. I loved, loved, loved playing spoiler. It was the fun thing. Of course, I didn't want to be in this position, but I loved it when I had to be there. And I really did enjoy that little feeling that I would have. So what do you think that is, Brock, in regards to pressure? I was just having a look at last night's scores in Major League Baseball. Nobody played spoiler last night. All the teams that were competing for a playoff spot beat a team that was mathematically eliminated. What do you think that comes from? Where do you think that lack of pressure or playing spoiler comes from? Why are teams able to do that? Because I would say there's also a flip side to this. There's a lot of teams who pack it in and say, bye-bye, I'm done. Like, I'm going home. This year is over. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that the, the, how do I put this? The overall built of an athlete is you're still competitive. You're still, you still want to play. And so for me, I think that that's, it's, it's built into most of our bloodstreams and like, we want to compete. We don't want to lose. We want to do this. And so there are the odd player, the odd team that might pack it in. But I think more often than not, you see situations where teams are like, no, let's go ruin another person's party. And, you know, and one of the things that I also would say, Dave, that just come to my mind is like, people don't want somebody to clinch a playoff spot on their turf. You know, like they don't want to see that celebration. They don't want to see that. So for them, as, as teams get closer and closer to clinching, it's like, no, let's not have that happen on our home turf. I don't. We don't want our fans to see that. We want to be the ones celebrating on our turf. And and then the flip side of that could be sometimes you can use that as motivation of like, look, they're celebrating. We could have and should have been there for teams that might have underperformed this year. Yeah, still four teams fighting for three spots in the American League wildcard race, and there's five teams playing for two spots in the National League. So this uh, continues to be a very exciting baseball season with about 10 games left. Brock, in the not-so-exciting file, Thursday night football taking place tonight. The New York Giants visiting the San Francisco 49ers. Maybe on paper, before the season, you'd say, oh, those are two big brands. Those are two teams who were in the playoffs last year. But Brock, Thursday Thursday night football, by the time you get to week three, the short rest, the injury reports piling up, the games are always sloppy. And this, and I think tonight's uh, no different. 
Yeah, no, it it is. And this is one of the things that as a person who I love extra football, don't get me wrong, but this is one of those points of the schedule where it's like uh, making teams play on shorter rest. It really diminishes your product. And I, I want to see p- people play as close to 100% as they can. In football, it's really tough to play at 100% for any more than one week, probably with the, the ice baths you might have to take. But the the more we can we can have teams play at their best, the better. I almost would like to see teams who have a bye week the week before uh, play on Thursday night. I don't know how much of a schedule nightmare that would be. I think that that would be a little bit of a better situation than what we're seeing now. And certainly by the midway point of the season and towards the latter third of it, you're going to see even worse products, I think, just because of the things we talked about. But my San Francisco 49ers, who I picked uh, to come out of the NFC, are still rolling, and so we'll see if that can continue. Undefeated, and they're probably going to walk over the Giants tonight. The Giants are missing three star players uh, due to injury. Now, the 49ers might also be dealing with some injuries tonight, but they are an overpowered, dominant defense that I believe they are going to give the Giants all kinds of trouble tonight, just after 8 p.m. Eastern time on TSN and DAZN. Brock, thank you for this. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. Apple's latest software update has a lot more to offer than you know. Marco Flalo will share some little-known facts about iOS 17. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Just a reminder about the daily poll. You can always get engaged with the show. The question I'm asking you today has to do with some heat and criticism Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is facing for flying to the UN General Assembly in New York instead of taking a more environmentally friendly method of transportation. So I'm asking you, how do you feel about politicians flying for short trips? Good, bad, or I don't care at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Now, you're not just limited to the Daily Poll. You can send feedback about whatever you see or hear on the show at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also send emails to feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone and give the show a ring ding ding, one 509 4545. Apple unveiled its latest software update earlier this week. Mark Aflalo has gathered some little known facts about iOS 17. Mark is the co host of Access Tech Live. The second ever episode of that show hits the airwaves on AMI TV today at noon. Hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Mr. Brown. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you feeling on uh, day two of Access Tech Live? Not as nervous as I was on day one. Um, I think that's because we didn't have to do like 17 days of rehearsals leading up to it. But I'm definitely definitely feeling good because we got a great show lined up. Uh, you're a man who sounds very enthusiastic. Looking forward to hearing it pouring into my office later today. So, Mark, let's talk about iOS 17. Uh, people mm-hmm. are buzzing a little bit here. There's a couple of different features here. 
Okay, so this one's pretty cool, and it's uh, it's meant for our kids and to keep them a little bit safe and hopefully, you know, uh, avoid things like eye strain and the risk of myopia. And and it's on by default if you have family sharing enabled on your phone. And family sharing is this feature where you literally just add your kids to your family and you can share purchases and you can monitor things like their screen time. Well, the new feature is pretty cool because it uses that depth perception camera so that lidar sensor and that true depth camera which is in the front of the phone will actually determine if they're holding the phone too close and that's um, a little bit closer than 12 inches for an extended period of time and it will actually pop up a message encouraging them to increase the distance or even take a break the best part about this i love is that the fact is the feature is on by default so you don't have to do anything but if you if you for some reason don't have family sharing going on and you want to turn it on you just have to go to screen time which is under the settings in iOS 17. Mark, I'm not a fashionable man, but I understand an iPhone might help me get dressed. Um, it can do more than getting dressed, Dave. Um, it can not only help identify things now, you know, like other services have been doing this for a while, identify things like clothing and the color of clothing. Um, but you know, those laundry symbols that are on tags that try to, in some way, shape or form, explain whether you're supposed to dry something or by hand or put it in the machine or use cold water or et cetera, et cetera. Now you can point your camera at these tags and it'll not only, you know, tell you what the tag says, but it'll actually decipher the symbols and say this is cold wash this is you know hand 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 dry only etc etc so it's a pretty cool thing it's part of a feature called visual lookup which we're going to get to in a second um but it takes it to kind of hold new levels because it really does help you on the everyday and it's not you know really for you can even if you can see the label you have no idea what these things mean they constantly oh change yeah, yeah, yeah i have no i have no idea you know that's it even someone with full eyesight these uh these things are teensy <sighs> tiny right like it, yeah. there, there's like no way to decide for what's going on there without a magnifying glass, even if you had perfect vision, <laughs> so let alone some jabroni like me. Uh, Mark, you mentioned this is part of the broader visual lookup package. So what's the yeah. bigger picture on visual lookup? So, so visual lookup is a take on the whole image to text description tool, and it works with a lot of AI, even though Apple doesn't like using the word AI because I guess they just want to make sure they differentiate themselves. Basically, you point the camera at absolutely anything, and it'll not only describe it, but help you decode it. And this great example that they gave was pointing it at the car dashboard with all these different lights that come up for various error messages. Oh, my gosh. It can actually, <laughs> yeah, it can actually decode what they mean. So, yeah, oh, well, great. There's a picture of some kind of random uh, horror horizontal stop sign or octagon who knows what and you have no idea what it means well now you can only decipher that but you can actually understand what it means and then act on it but it also works on buttons in the car too if there are buttons you get into a car and you're like what are all these buttons for you can point at the buttons that will tell you actually what they're meant for and their purpose moving on to something different that's practical for everybody to understand yeah what is apple rolling out in regards to password management so there's a couple of things here, and, and the, the biggest thing is lately, especially the past couple of years, we've used two-factor authentication for a lot of things. So that's when you log into somewhere and you get a text or an email with a five, six, seven, eight-digit code yeah. to help authenticate it and tell them that it's you. The problem is, as great as these are to keep you secure... They, they cram up your inbox and they cram up your, your text inbox, you know? So it's like, what are all these things here for? You don't even know. Sometimes because like banking, for example, I log into it a couple of times a day. I don't even know which one's the right password anymore. There's now a new feature that is enabled by default as well. But if not, you can just go into settings and turn them on under passwords and it'll automatically delete these after you use them, which is 
awesome. But here's the other cool part about this is that even while deleting them, it'll now support third-party mail applications. So if you don't use necessarily the Apple Mail and you use Outlook or you use Gmail, it'll detect them in those as well. So previously, it was only Apple text messages or Apple Mail. When they came in, it would know, hey, we, we need this to log in. Now they'll detect them from Gmail and other apps too, which is pretty cool. Mark, when a software update like this comes out, certainly Apple's going to have what they put in a press release. How much yeah. personal discovery do you end up going through as these <sighs> iOSs roll out and all of a sudden you're hopping into your iPhone, like messing around, messing with settings? One of my great fears in life is to mess with my settings in case I can't get back to where I was. But how much personal discovery are you going through on a week like this when you software comes out? Well, I mean, I've been using the beta for a while, so I've been playing with a lot of these features um, for a couple of weeks now, trying to figure out how they work, how they don't work. I did, of course, install it on a, on a test device, so I wasn't really messing with my main settings here and there, but it, it's, uh, it's a constant discovery. And you know, these days, the way that the world works with software, there's constant updates, there's constant little upgrades here and there, um, and they're constantly changing the way things work. So I find myself not only discovering things on my own, but then I'll like watch a video about someone reviewing something or I'll read an article and be like, I didn't know that feature existed. Like the laundry one, I had no clue that you could read laundry symbols. That's going to change my life forever if my wife ever lets me touch the laundry. <laughs> hey, division of labor is very important, Mark. It's important. I, listen, I'm all for it. She doesn't let me. I'm not allowed to. I can unload the dishwasher. Not allowed loading it because I don't do it properly. Oh, um, and and I can unload. I can unload and I can fold laundry. I just can't put it in because I might put the wrong stuff in. Okay. There are rules to follow, Dave. The, the, I'm not allowed. <laughs> I'm not allowed. There are rules and order of operation. That is how yeah. we keep society in line. Uh, Mark, off the top, I mentioned second episode of Access Tech Live hitting the airwaves today at noon. What do you and Stephen Scott have on deck for the tech? Well, you know, tomorrow these new phones are coming out. And in my hands right now, I've got two of them Whoa. and they're sealed and I've I've had them for a couple of days and I haven't opened the boxes yet. So we're going to do a real time live unboxing. And not only that, we're going to be talking to someone over at Amazon about all their announcements from their big, big Echo event yesterday because Alexa uh -oh, is getting smarter. I said the word. Yeah, I thanks. Said the word. I, I got so mad at Mike Dubusky in the first hour for doing that. I'm also going to yeah. be mad at you for holding up iPhones and not saying they were iPhones because. Uh, oh, I'm because sorry. These just, are iPhones in yeah, my hand. I've little, got the iPhone 15 Plus and I've got the iPhone uh, Pro, <laughs> not the Pro Max, in my hands right now. I, I thought, um, you know, I said I, I was going into that going, I need to explain exactly what I'm holding up and I didn't do it. Yeah. And I've got the new finely woven Apple case, which apparently Ooh. is horrible. So we're going to talk okay. all about that wow. stuff as well. Live unboxing on the air with Mark. Marka Flalo, that is top-tier stuff. Well, Mark, I'm looking forward to it. Have a great show. Talk to you next week. Thanks, Dave. That's Marka Flalo, one of the co-hosts of Access Tech Live. I've been practicing that one all morning to say it properly on air. You can find it noon Eastern time on AMI-tv. You can find The Pulse on AMI-audio on the weekends. This weekend, Joita Gupta will chat with Slava Greenberg. Slava is the author of Crippling Spectatorship, a book that examines disability representation in animation. That's The Pulse weekends at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. You can also find it on demand on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up next, A Haunting in Venice debuted last weekend in the theaters. It made a whole bunch of money. And now entertainment critic Michael McNeely will offer up a review. But first, here is the Paris Sport Update. Hello and welcome back to the Paris Sport Update. I'm Greg Westlake. 
All eyes in the world of athletics were on Eugene, Oregon for the Prefontaine Classic, the final stop in the 2023 Wanda Diamond League season. At the storied Hayward Field, Marissa Papaconstantinou raced in the women's 100-meter parafinal. In the tightly contested sprint, the Canadian finished fifth. Traversing the continent, the stars of tomorrow descended on Toronto for the Birmingham Wheelchair Tennis Classic. The tournament featured 14 Canadians. Throughout the Classic, three Canadians made it to the women's singles semifinals. Natalia Lancha was the lone Canuck to reach the final. In the final, Lancha fell 3-6-1-6 to Michelle Wilson of the United States. On the men's side, Sean Korshesny and Marco Golick served their way to the double semifinals before losing to Pablo Gill and Connor Stroud 2-6-0-6. From the hard court to the hard floor, the men represented Canada at the International Wheelchair Rugby Cup have been announced. The 12-person squad heading to Paris has experience, leadership, and star power. Zach Medell, Mike Whitehead, and Travis Morau will all wear the Maple Leaf proudly when the tournament opens on October 18th. And that's our time for this edition of the Parasport Update, presented by AMI-audio. Check back next week for more news from the world of adaptive sports. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. A Haunting in Venice debuted in theaters last weekend. It was one of the top films at the box office, but a lot of folks thought its earnings were underwhelming at $37.2 million. The film was directed by Kenneth Branagh and has a big ensemble cast, which includes Tina Fey and Michelle Yeoh. Here is a clip from the film's trailer. In Venice, Italy... Hercule Poirot, I've found something. 20th Century Studios. I've looked at it from every which way. I am the smartest person I ever met, and I can't figure it out, so I came to the second. You are up to something, my friend. Fireworks reflect off the water. I've seen a million of these so-called psychics, each one a fake. I do not believe in psychics. Come with me to a seance. Spot the con I can't. Detective, you are here to discredit me, but I can talk to the dead. I'd give all I have to hear my daughter's voice. If someone wants to be heard, we are here. The psychic stretches her arms forward. Listening. A chandelier falls, lights flicker, a teacup smashes. The psychic speaks. Mama, Felicia. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely has thoughts on the film. He's here in studio alongside his intervener, Jill. Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you? I am doing great. So, Michael, the film is loosely based on a novel by Agatha Christie called Halloween Party. So your first impression is Agatha Christie, Kenneth Branagh. Those are geniuses. Why do you say that? I think because they found a market. And they're stuck with it. I know one of them is dead, but the other one is still alive to capitalize upon that market. I think there's just, you know, a universal love for murder mysteries, self-contained murder mysteries that are not showy, but they are something that maybe the whole family can think about and try and solve together. The trailer gave away just like a sliver of the premise. What more can you share without giving too much away? Well, as we know, it's Inspector Poirot with his very strange mustache that defies the laws of gravity. 
um, somehow found his way in Venice, and just wants to be left alone. But his friend, played by Tina Fey, has a mystery for him to solve, which is the way that these things always work. Apparently, she wants to figure out whether or not a seance is real, or if the psychic is faking it. And ultimately, somebody dies during that seance. And Inspector Poirot is called in to figure it out. What were some of the interesting themes that you pulled out of the film? Well, this film is set in 1947, just after the end of the World War, the Second World War. And so what we see here is people grappling with what we know now as PTSD, but they didn't have a term for it at the time. So I think nearly all the characters have experienced some sort of violent trauma or some sort of bad experience during the war. And they're just struggling to find vocabulary to talk about it. So I really appreciated that because it adds a new layer to the murder mystery itself. And it's something that, of course, we always have to keep in mind. There is a line in there that says, during plagues, which immediately made me think about the pandemic, it says, during plagues, people act rashly because they're afraid. And so I can, I can relate to that now in the present day. Venice is a really interesting place to set a story like this. How did the film play with the location? I think it did very well. As I was talking with my interview, you know, I came up with the realization that all these films that Kenneth Bernard has directed and starred in, they're very self-contained places. So, for example, you have Murder on the Orient Express, which takes place on the train. Then you have Murder on the Nile, or whatever that title is, it takes place on the boat. And this one takes place in the Palacio, which is more or less like a, a mansion or a castle. And it used to be a former children's hospital, which I can't think of anything more scarier than that. When you hear the screams and laughter of the children, and you're not sure what it's for. Um, so I think Venice is more or less an interesting location to shoot in, because we don't often see movies in Venice, especially now with some of the flooding issues that are going on. But here we have rainstorms that are making everybody stay in the castle, or they're trapped in the castle, they can't get out, and if the, the canals are flooded, so they can't get out, everybody's trapped, and there's a reason to stay in this location. A great mystery thriller needs great characters. What were your perceptions of the main characters in this film? Well, there's Inspector Poirot, but he's more or less just a a general avatar for the audience. We don't really know much about him, and we, we, may never, we may never know much about him, which is the point. But the other characters have, you know, little um, histories and personalities that we can take home with us. So first of all, I really appreciated Tina Fey in this movie. I was, you know, I think she's somebody that we, we don't appreciate often because she can do serious as well as comedy, and she does more serious in this film than comedy, although she still has that. I don't think you can ever get rid of the comedy with Tina Fey, but she still has that, that snarkiness. Um, some of the other characters that I liked were this boy and father. The boy is very mature for his age. He must be about 10, but he's taking care of his father, who we know now has PTSD, and his father turns out to be the doctor. So it's kind of a kind of a tough one there. 
And the boy is always like, Dad, are you okay? Are you okay, Dad? Come here, come here. I'll hold your hand. Just take some deep breaths. So I think that son will eventually become one of the leading psychiatrists for dealing with PTSD, but he's just a very young boy. And again, I think it underscores that a lot of children suffered, especially when you think about the children's hospital history of this palace, that a lot of children had to pay for the sins of their, their adults or their parents. Mm -hmm. um, I would also mention that there were some other characters, including the psychic, who may or may not be fake, that just drive it home. Everybody was interested, and I, I appreciated getting to know all of them. You mentioned Tina Fey, who I 100% agree with you, is an underrated, underappreciated actor. She was in a film a couple of years ago called Whiskey Tango Foxtrot about a journalist in Afghanistan that was amazing, amazing, great acting performance by her, and just great writer. T Tina Fey, when you look back at the last 25 years of entertainment, is one of the most underappreciated creators, actors, etc. But there are some other big names in this film. Michelle Yeoh coming off uh, Oscar nominations, Oscar wins. What you make? What did you make of the other acting performances in the ensemble cast? Well, I know that the, the little boy is probably not going to be nominated for an Oscar, but I would want him to be. Um, it's hard when you do it with an ensemble because the first rule of being an ensemble is that you don't take away you don't take away from other people. So if if somebody gets an Oscar in an ensemble, that in itself is a failure of the ensemble because everybody is meant to be having a spotlight. And that's why most of the time when somebody in an ensemble wins an Oscar, they'll say, I shouldn't be here today. I, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my, for my other cast. So I think everybody delivers strong performances, and it's not just one person. Michael, the film's reviews have been a little bit mixed. I will say the trailer's compelling. I saw it last week, and I thought to myself, ooh, that's not typically my genre of movie, but I like the actors, I like the director, I like the setting. So the reviews are mixed. Why should somebody potentially go see A Haunting in Venice? It's simple. It's not a flashy movie. It's something that is almost like the TV shows that we used to watch many years ago, like Murder, She Wrote, and those shows in which an episode was a self-contained mystery. Everybody is stuck in this haunted house and not when they're getting out of this haunted house. It's just, this is what you get. What you see is what you get. Um, I think people are used to more flashier things, but that's not necessarily a good thing. I think all the characters are here, and they are interesting, and at the end of the day, you will have a good time watching this movie. I think maybe those people that gave it mixed reviews were expecting something that was not advertised on the bus. Mm. And... I think there's something to be said for just having a fun time, which is more or less what my job is about. And I think this movie is really just, you know, two hours. And then in a year's time, we'll have another Inspector Parole mystery that will not have any callbacks to this one. Mm. <laughs> Michael, that's a controversial take. Uh, watching movies should be fun. I, 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 we're going to get the hate mail pouring in on that one. Well, I know you're probably going to quote me on that one when the next time I find some movie that's going to make us all sad. <laughs> Michael, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you for coming in studio. Great to have you here. Please let me know anytime you get a mustache like that one so that we can talk about the laws of gravity. <laughs>
I'm always into talking about physics. It's all part of my midlife crisis. That's entertainment critic Michael McNeely, accompanied by his intervener, Jill. Michael reviewed A Haunting in Venice. The film is rated PG-13, and you can find it in theaters all across the country. A great excuse to buy some popcorn. And you can follow Michael on Twitter at Michael D. McNeely, at Michael D. McNeely. And McNeely is spelled M-C-N-E-E-L-Y. Coming up after the break, Elizabeth Moeller has a roundtable conversation all about tipping habits and where tipping ends up intersecting with disability. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Busy days around the halls of AMI-tv. Fantastic to have Michael McNeely stop by in studio with his intervener, Jill. And a huge shout-out to the crew for literally moving the furniture around during the commercial breaks to facilitate that one. Big shout-out and thank you to the whole gang for being a part of that one. And, of course, Access Tech Live hitting the airwaves at noon Eastern time with Mark Aflalo and Steven Gotten. Don't go too far from your TV. Maybe a little break between 1 and 2, because then at 2 o'clock Eastern Time, Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves for another edition of that show. And Ramya Emwithin is here to offer up a sneak peek into what you can get your eyes and ears on this afternoon. Hello, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. We have Fern Lullum from the UK joining us today. And uh, because she's been having a lot of these mental health conversations and topics, we're talking about self-worth today and the importance of oh, valuing man. ourselves. Oh, it's man. a deep Self-love. one. Self-love. Oh, man. Oh, it's a deep one. Uh, and then we switch over to some tech. We're talking about with Curious or Christine Malik on Curious Minds, the comparison of and partnership between Be My Eyes and chat GPT. They have an image description function. It's very fun and conversational, but uh, obviously we'll get into more than just that. And then on our round table, we have Karen McGee and her partner, Jeff, joining us to talk about um, say, the big experience that they've been going through, which is kidney donation. Yeah. Karen uh, and Jeff really uh, went through quite uh, quite the time together on that one. And I know that neither of them are particularly shy about sharing those experiences. That's going to be a fascinating conversation uh, with yes, Karen McGee and her partner, Jeff. Just fantastic, fantastic people. Big time fans of both of them. Ramya, I want to go back to self-love for a second here, though. Self-love and self-worth, that's a tough one. Because you know those days when you're really in the dumps and you're dragging? Mm-hmm. <sighs> it is tough to pull yourself out of the aquarium, right? You just think of yourself in your fishbowl, in your aquarium, and it's really, really difficult to get distance on that one on one of those days when you drag in remembering about self-worth and self-love and positive self-talk. But that, like, that is a a secret, secret sauce. I'm really keen to hear what Fern has to say about that. I am too, Dave, and especially because I think we all have different coping mechanisms, but do we understand really how deep it is, how deep it goes, and um, you know whether or not we're getting to the roots of different things uh, before we actually get distracted or start coping or start you know 
yeah. figuring out yeah. how we're dealing. And, you know, that came up a little bit in the conversation I had with a new Paula yesterday about stress management, that mm -hmm. sometimes there's a difference between what you're doing to cope or what you're doing to manage versus understanding what might actually be putting you in that hole. Exactly. And, and, you can, and you can try to react and react and react and react, but what happens is after a long time, if all you're doing is reacting, you're never actually taking proactive action. It, it, it's in the words, literally speaking. Yes, exactly. So Fern usually does an amazing job at telling us what it is that we need to be paying attention to, to understand that this is something we're going through today versus this is something, you know, from a deeper place. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Romeo, that's a great way to kick off the show later this afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. Don't go too far, though, Romeo. Literally, don't go anywhere. I'll be very mad at you if you go somewhere <laughs> because Elizabeth Moeller has a very interesting roundtable topic for yourself, Nizreen Abdel-Majid, and me. So, Elizabeth, what's on your mind this morning? Well, we all know that tipping's been a common practice in, in our society, and now we are seeing an increase in the services that we're expected to tip for. But I want to take a bit of a different angle today. I want to look at the intersection of tipping and disability, because all three of us here on the show live with a disability, occasionally might need extra assistance, reading a menu, finding a restroom, finding your gate at the train. So I want to put something out there. Let's chat. Do you take the extra assistance into account that you need when you have a disability when you are providing a tip? And if so, how? And Nisreen, I want to kick it over to you. I've never had the uh, experience of a waitress or anybody helping me in that sort of thing. I mean, yeah, of course, um, guiding me to the washroom, but actually telling me, okay, can you read this menu? I feel like they get a little awkward and they don't know what to do at that point when I tell them, okay, I have low vision and they get all uh flustered about it so I'm like okay this is awkward for me and for you um so just to get that sort of assistance is very difficult for me to open up and tell like uh, I'll wait just okay can you help me so I end up asking a friend or whoever I'm with okay can you like tell me what's on the menu what what I should get kind of thing um and even guiding me to the washroom I feel not just shy but I feel like I'm I get put in a situation where they look at me, diff uh, not differently, but they look at me in a specific way that um, they uh, don't know what to do. They've never had this experience before. Like, how am I supposed to do this? So they get a little awkward about it. And I don't know if you guys understand where I'm coming from, but you, when you experience that one time, you're like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. So I, I ask a closer friend or whoever I'm with. So, Elizabeth, I actually want to bounce this back to you because I want you to offer a little bit more clarification with maybe some concrete examples here of what you're referring to in regards to maybe that service standard. Because Nizreen is right. It's, like, super awkward to go ask, like, a waitress at a bar being like, so could you uh, walk me to the bathroom, please? Like, I can see how that <laughs> yeah. would lead to some uh, awkward conversations. But that, that might not necessarily uh, relate exactly to the tipping culture. So tie this knot mm -hmm. a little bit tighter, Elizabeth. 
Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, when I think about tipping and, and accessibility, I think it's going that extra mile. So I think about times where I've been on a resort and someone's taken that extra time to, you know, guide me to uh, the dining room for dinner or show us around the resort if I'm with somebody else with sight loss. I think there's also times even when I've received customer service on a train and someone's taken that extra time to just provide orientation. Um, that's when, when they're going that extra mile, Mile, I feel as somebody who has a disability, it's almost like commodification of disability. If I want that extra level of service, if I want that assistance, then I personally feel like I need to tip more. And it's an interesting kind of conversation because where does good customer service end? And then my decision to start tipping begin as somebody who needs a little bit more assistance than just perhaps another customer who's who's in the restaurant or, or using the service. Okay, that is fantastic for tying that knot a little bit tighter, Elizabeth, because that really clarifies what the crux of this is. So Ramya, as I bounce the ball to you here, understanding there are layers to this about maybe the mm -hmm. nature of the assistance or the nature of the position, how does the possibility of an extra assistance influence how you might tip someone who's offering you some service? So first of all, I want to say that it's never not going to be an option. Um, if I'm getting any kind of assistance or support from staff at a resort, at a restaurant, at any kind of place, like even when I go take my dog to the groomers, if they've been helpful to me, I will always feel like I need to tip, okay? And that's, you know, regardless of whether they were receptive, whether they were extra friendly, all that stuff. I just think as a person with a disability, I and I as a person who walks into a lot of places by myself, there's just this this part of me that knows that I will be tipping based on the fact that these people are giving me extra assistance, period. So that's where it starts for me. Um, and then the other part of it is just how receptive they are. Like, Nasreen, you talked about people's reactions to you asking for help. Oftentimes now, this wasn't the same case, let's say, 10 years ago, but oftentimes mm. now I'm mm -hmm. able to walk into any place like... Um, can't remember the name of the taco place that shops at Don Mills, but I go there often oh, by and, myself. Uh, let's, let's, no, let's, give them, let's, let's give them some Shout love. Out. And, yeah, some love to Yeho. Awesome tequila. Exactly. Awesome tequila <laughs> and awesome tacos. So in Yeho, I walk in there by myself, and they're just so receptive to a blind person coming in on their own. Um, honestly, all their staff, like anyone I've encountered, are uh, able to ask me the right questions, like where would you like to sit? How can I give you an arm? Um, they're there with the menu ready for me and i don't necessarily I think it's yeah yeah and it's yeah, not just because of me but because they seem to be quite receptive to just like people with different accommodations or needs coming in and so that kind of thing again it's all very influenced by um their reception to disability to begin with or if i suggest hey can i take your arm or can you read the menu to me depending on how they react to that uh that'll then influence my tip so yeah, it's absolutely very much you know influence that way. Ramya, I, I want to stay with you for just another moment here, though, because you kind of jumped ahead to one of the other layers of this conversation, which is the kinds of people who offer service that might not always be associated with a tip. I didn't know you were supposed to tip dog groomers. Now that I think about that, I'm like, oh, <laughs> maybe that's one more place where uh, some jingle jangle is going to come out of my pocket on, on the way we go here. But as you make the argument that you're making about the preparation to offer maybe a little bit of extra 
extra for some service that you might receive, does that even extend to a position or uh, someone who's working where there might not typically be the expectation of a tip? It For me personally, no. Like this only comes to play if there is a tip option. Okay, um, okay. I know that mm, I'm going to have to tip. Okay. Yeah, but also I'm the person who's not going to tip just because the tip option's there at like a, um, a food court, you know? Yeah. You know how nowadays yeah. at the yeah. food court, you yeah. Know, oh, yeah. walk up to the counter and they there's a tip option. I'm like, I do not understand <laughs> this. Please yeah. skip tip. Yeah, the, the people the people at the a large sandwich chain down the street on the Donway have introduced the tipping option. And I'm like, I respect that you are a sandwich artist and you did a nice job of shoving some pickles <laughs> in my sandwich, but I'm not like I'm not all the way sure. I'm not all the way sure that I want to tip you. I still do. I still do. It's just not like sandwich as generous. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's, what that's what they call themselves. That's what they call themselves. They call themselves sandwich artists. Not that I'm not That's that I'm gi- not that I'm giving away too much. Elizabeth, similar question to you, because I think in the way you set this up, it was very interesting about perhaps an expectation of offering a tip to someone who might not typically get a tip. Maybe even using the mm-hmm. example of the person at the train station, yes. the gosh awful train station in downtown Toronto. We won't uh, name it. We won't name we, it. We, we will name it. Union Station. They 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 do okay, they, okay. They, you do, can they, name it. they do okay work. They do okay <laughs> yes. work. But I find some of the service standards are slipping there a little bit yes, if I was to I if I was sliding. if I was yes. to grind an axe I would grind that axe but Elizabeth maybe I wouldn't typically think about tipping one of like the via rail staff at mm-hmm. Union Station yeah. but what is your perception of that you posed the question you must yeah. have a thought on yeah. this no I, I do and I take the train at least once or twice a week and the reality is that since I have started bringing a little bit of tip money with me the service I get is much better. They're receptive. They come back and and let me know if a train's late. Not only am I boarded first, which is supposed to be common practice, but a lot of times I haven't been boarded first. They check on me on the train. And it is why I like to use this word commodification of disability, because Mm. for me, this really speaks to, wow, if I want what to me is good, proper customer service, I'm not asking for anything extravagant. I'm finding in some places I'm having to tip and I'm struggling with it, but I also need to have my access needs met. So yeah. It's a very sticky wicket. Yeah, and, and that's that's a really interesting point. And Nazreen, this is where I'm going to bounce the ball back to you because all of a sudden you start thinking about the disability tax, right? The way in which disability is perceived that sometimes doing things in life are going to cost a little bit more as a result of your disability. Is this maybe just another layer on that disability tax? Or does it maybe seem a little bit extra problematic, this idea of I want my guaranteed accessibility need met and I can only do that with a toonie or a fiver. I don't think it's just even accessibility. That should be a go. That should be a no-brainer that if you get the, those services met, um, then, yeah, of course, you're going to get that tip that you want. But it, it, it's more broader than that. I feel like that should be a requirement always that, okay, if you see somebody that needs assistance or it doesn't even have to be physically uh, visibly um visibly a visible disability right so those services are always important you can't be asking for a tip when you you haven't done anything Uh, Mm -hmm. i feel like that's unfair and as you said remya i feel like that's at a food court I, i feel like every place has a tip when they're not even having any services available you know what i mean mm-hmm. so um but i feel that even with a disability on hand like you need those services met 
Right. You need mm-hmm. somebody. Yeah. And to but, but Nisreen, that's ultimately that. the question that Elizabeth's asking, right? Is it appropriate? Yeah. Is it appropriate for there to be an expectation of a tip because somebody met your access needs when that should be, in theory, part of their job description? Like that—that's the crux of this. It should be part of their job description. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel yeah. like regarding, I, I don't think it's appropriate to ask for that tip. However, it's it's part of your job description. If you would like, if you if they give you um, like a great service, then hey. Here's a tip. Yeah, that's where I want to leave this. I want to say in life, if you can, if you can be generous and you can afford to be generous, please tip people, even if you think it's outside of like mm-hmm. the vein of where they should yeah, get it. Absolutely. But like take care of people. That's the underlying lesson that I want you to take away from this. Until the show comes back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. And when you can, be generous and tip your server. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.